I want to begin this morning by asking you a movie trivia question. What do Titanic, Inception, Blade Runner, Catch Me If You Can, Twilight, Sherlock Holmes, The Pursuit of Happiness, National Treasure, Aladdin, and 899 other movies all have in common? besides the fact that they have a beginning, a middle, and an end. They all contain this line. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And now as I I say it, you're probably in your mind having flashbacks to the different lines in a movie. It's always that hand, do you trust me? Right? There's that scene. And I was surprised when I looked up on a whim to see uh, how many movies had used that line just to see that overwhelming number. That, that's a clue, right? Films, movies, these are forms of storytelling. They, they capture themes that are meant to resonate widely, and clearly this is a theme that resonates widely and deeply with us. That point of decision when, when a character, they don't feel like they have the ability to overcome, they don't understand fully what's going on, and they are forced to trust or not trust someone else to deliver them, to lead them, and to guide them to safety and, and to victory. And in this passage that we're going to be looking at this morning and next week, I think we're going to see Peter and his disciples wrestling Uh, Not well, Peter and the rest of Jesus' disciples wrestling with this very question. And Jesus is going to be kind of putting it to them. All of these things that you don't understand and that are confusing you and are bothering you, do you believe me? Do you trust me? Are you willing to accept by faith the one who is speaking to you right now, even if you can't comprehend with your mind the circumstances that are unfolding around you? And so this morning... For our reading of scripture, I want to invite you actually to take your copy of God's word and turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 46. Psalm 46. I believe this psalm does a great job of capturing in the Old Testament this heart of faith in who God is, even in the midst of the uncertainties of life. It's a great example of anchoring our hope to a trust in God even if we don't know what exactly he's up to. And so as you're able, if you would take your copy of God's Word and stand to honor the reading of it this morning, we will be reading Psalm 46 together. For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah, set to Alamoth, a song. And just as a quick footnote, those introductory comments are in fact part of the inspired text. So that's not just like the uh, subject headings you see um, in your New Testament. That is part of the original. Verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the most holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice. The earth melted. 
The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Would you pray with me? We come to pray to you, Yahweh of hosts, the covenant-keeping God of Jacob and the covenant-keeping God who even now in his promise watches over us who are yours in Christ. And we know that since you are with us, who can be against us? And we trust you, though it were to seem as it were that the very earth were shaken and though the mountains would, would appear to slip into the heart of the sea, yet none of these things would change in any way you, your purposes, and your unfailing love for us. And so we will not fear. Help us, Lord, to trust you and to be led by you so that we may give you the glory you so richly deserve. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As you recall, we are joining Jesus again and the disciples in that upper room where they have been sharing a Passover meal. Here's a picture of the traditional upper room in Jerusalem. You can try to get that up on the screen for you. You'll notice it's not decorated for dinner in this picture. And you have to erase a little bit of some of the fancy colonnades and church decorations that have been added over the years. But if you imagine just a, a, a decently sized open limestone flagstone floor type of a room uh, with a low table on it and food spread out upon it and mats around the table where you could recline down by that low table and fellowship together. Uh, the sound of your voices kind of echoing off of those limestone walls. There may have been some, some tapestries and some rugs hung for decoration and to dampen the sound a bit. But that's sort of the environment. That's the scene. That's where we're at. Jesus has dismissed the traitor, Judas, and he is now teaching his disciples. And this morning, we're only going to look at three verses. And so if you're with me in John chapter 13 now, Flip back to the other end of your Bibles. Uh, John chapter 13, we're going to be looking at verses 36 to 38 that say this. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. And so this morning, I want us to notice the questions Peter asks and the way in which Jesus deflects those questions towards what he should have asked. And I believe along that way, we're going to be reminded of some very important lessons about how we are to live a life of trusting Jesus and we're also going to be reminded of some of those reasons 
that Jesus deserves to be trusted. Both, I think, are going to be revealed to us this morning. And so let's look first at Peter's first question. In your outlines, if you're taking notes this morning, your first point there is Peter asks where, Jesus answers when. Peter asks where, Jesus answers when in verse 36. And it begins by saying this, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? So Peter is always the most vocal of probably any group he's ever been in. And he's once again rising above the fray with this vocal question for Jesus. If you recall, the last question he had asked was in response to the topic of betrayal when he had asked John to ask Jesus, who is it? And we don't know if Peter ever heard or understood Jesus' reply that he made to John. But now he's moving on. Peter's moving on to react to the next thing that Jesus is talking about. And we shouldn't be too quick to judge, even if it seems like he's never quite caught up to where Jesus is at. At least he's engaged. right? And as, and as a parent and a teacher, I always appreciate any student who is engaged and is tracking with you. Jesus has just finished announcing that he and the Father are being glorified. Right now, the Son is being glorified, and the Father is being glorified in him. And since he is about to go away, he wants to leave them with a new or a renewed commandment. And that commandment, as you remember, is an elevation of the great commandment to love one another. No longer are the disciples of Jesus merely to love one another as they love themselves. They are to love one another as Jesus loved them. And this love will be the identifying mark of the disciples of Jesus. Peter, however, isn't thinking at all about Jesus' example of sacrificial foot washing, which, as you recall, he had complained publicly about, nor is he thinking about the fact that the betrayer has been called out right before this teaching about love, which, as you recall, Peter had interrupted about. He isn't even thinking about how he needs to love his fellow disciples as Jesus is currently commanding them because he's interrupting them again to go back to what Jesus had said in verse 33 when Jesus said, Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And now, as it ends there, I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. In Peter's mind, there are two things that always must go together. Peter and Jesus. You don't separate those things. All he can think about is why on earth would Jesus be planning to leave us? More specifically, to leave me. And Peter is deciding here, I don't care if Jesus is planning to leave everybody else. I'm going with him. It reminds me of that powerful scene in Peter Jackson's film depicting the Lord of the Rings when Frodo, who has been entrusted with the central quest of saving the world, he's trying to leave his companions and head to the dark land of Mordor on his own. And as he paddles away on his own in his small boat, his best friend Sam spies him leaving and comes running to give chase. Go back, Sam, says Frodo. I'm going to Mordor alone. Sam replies, of course you are, and I'm coming with you. I think that's exactly the heart of Peter here. 
If you're leaving, I'm following. Where are we going? Jesus then answers. Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow later. Later. Jesus deflects the question of Peter. He doesn't give Peter a destination. He gives him instead a timeline. The place Jesus is going is a place that Peter will not and cannot come now. However, Peter will follow later. So what is Jesus referring to? Well, some say this is a general reference to resurrection and glory in heaven. And Jesus is referring to the fact that soon he will rise from the dead. And as the firstborn of the dead, he will ascend to the right hand of the Father and await the arrival of all of his disciples who will come and join him there. It is a general promise that I'm going back to the Father and then someday, not now, but someday, you will all come to be with me. And that's certainly true. And Jesus will even refer to this reality more specifically in the first verses of chapter 14, which we will look at next week. And what a blessed promise that is, that all who follow after Jesus will one day arrive in his presence. But there's another possibility here, and I think it may more precisely reflect what Jesus has in mind. These words spoken to Peter point forward, I believe, to the unique way in which Peter would one day follow his Savior, not only to heaven, but to a cross. Peter does not yet realize that Jesus himself is going to the cross, though Jesus has been giving more and more specific references to it. Much less, Peter does not realize that one day he will experience the same destiny Though if you recall from church tradition, Peter said to be hung on the cross as my Savior was would be too great an honor and requested to be crucified upside down. When Jesus had told his disciples in John 13, 31, now is the Son of Man glorified in reference to his death, he is almost echoing that language when he tells Peter that now Peter cannot follow him to where he is going, but he will later because this is the hour for the Son to glorify the Father, later would come the hour for Peter to glorify the Father as well. And you can even read about that in John, because in just a few chapters, in John chapter 21, Peter is going to be told by his Savior, when you were young, you girded yourself, and you went where you wanted to go. But when you are old, you will be girded, and you will be led to where you do not want to go. And it's John's note there specifically this, by this Jesus signified by what type of death Peter would glorify God. This is the hour of the sons giving glory to the Father. But Peter will follow indeed that example, but he cannot now. Peter is fixated on where things are going. He's determined to find a loophole around the revealed plan of God so that he could stay with Jesus. Instead, he should have been focused on how to be obedient to what Jesus had commanded. And so should we. I think our first lesson this morning is this. Trust for the future, but obey in the present. Trust for the future, obey in the present. Following Jesus when we know the long-term destination, but not the short-term destination, is always going to be the path of the Christian life. 
God has said, this is where you will end up. But he has not said, this is where you will be along the way. The child of God knows that heaven is the future, but there are so many things that we wish Jesus would clarify between now and then, are there not? For our young people in the morning, in in this room this morning, would you like to know what you're going to do when you grow up? Would you like to know who your spouse will be? Would you like to know where you'll live and what job you'll have? Do you wish that was just clearly given to you? Some here today may be wondering where your marriage is going, where your relationship with an estranged child is going, where your health is going. We know where Jesus is now. We know where he went. We know where he is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, but we don't know where we're going. And I think this is often reflected in the fact that our prayers can simply be where are we going prayers, Or, I have a suggested destination prayers. And it's not wrong to ask God to show us things. It's not wrong to request that God would work in a particular way, but I think that's incomplete if that's the limit of our prayer. We need to trust that when Jesus tells us to follow, or when he calls us to wait, that it is for our good. That we don't need to know what is coming next as long as we know who is determining what comes next. Instead, we can entrust that future to Jesus and focus on obedience now. How can I love more like Christ in my situation? How can I give God glory by holiness and small daily acts of faithfulness? And this is where our faith becomes very practical. As Jesus left the command to his disciples, love one another as I have loved you, they were going to go on all sorts of adventures pursuing that goal. Most of them, except for the author of the Gospel of John himself, would die unnatural deaths at the hands of persecution. And Jesus didn't say, you need to know that this is going to happen to you and prepare and and be in the right place at the right time. And you need to know the words to say when you're put on trial in this situation so you can give a faithful testimony to God. And and you need to do this and you need to do that. And this is going to happen to you. He says, instead, love each other every day and trust me. And that's our challenge. Life is full of surprises to us and we may not know what to do to solve the problems of today but the good news is it's often not our responsibility to solve the problems it's our responsibility to be faithful in the midst of the problems and that I think is the lesson Jesus was trying to leave his disciples our second lesson here is this and it's a classic solus Christus Solus Christus, you may recognize that as one of the five gospel truths recovered in the Reformation. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Christ alone. All our faith rests on his accomplished work alone. We are reminded in our text that part of our faith resting on Christ alone meant that when it came to accomplishing this work on our behalf, he had to go alone. 
No friend or companion would support or help our Savior when he was lifted from the earth to face alone the unleashing of God's infinite wrath against sin. Jesus and Jesus alone could lay down his life in this manner. Had anyone or had everyone altogether attempted it, we would have failed and been consumed. Jesus alone drained the cup of sin's wages. He alone swallowed entirely the dread of death. And so even later when Peter would follow Jesus, he would do so in the grace secured by Jesus. A Christian who dies does not truly die. They pass from life to life more abundant. We are called as disciples to bear the cross but we will never bear the curse. Peter could not go where Jesus went because he could not do what Jesus had to do alone. And the flip side is that Jesus could have stayed. He did not have to go, but he went anyway for us. And I trust that we are never so distracted by the lesser cares of this life that we lose the force of gratitude this simple fact demands of us. We can wonder what might have happened if Peter had begun to pick up on what Jesus meant here. What benefit we have of hindsight and hearing these words and the full knowledge of what Jesus is about to do. But for Peter, he is now more exasperated than ever. And he tries to press Jesus even further. And so we get to the second question this morning. Peter asks, why? Jesus answers, will? Peter asks, why? Jesus answers, will? Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. You can sense Peter's confusion and perhaps some heartache in this reply, he's quit his job. He's left his family. He's now spent years walking and learning and serving alongside Jesus. What reason could possibly exist for why he can't follow Jesus right now? In fact, it's more clumsy, but a more literal translation of Peter's, here, of Peter's words here would be, Lord, on account of what am I not able or empowered to follow you just now? In other words, he's asking, what is the obstacle? What is the hindrance that Jesus thinks will prevent Peter from following? Maybe Jesus feels the road ahead is too risky. Perhaps he thinks the odds are too great. Perhaps Jesus is afraid to ask his disciples to put themselves in more danger. And Peter decides, let me put your mind at ease, Jesus. He will lay down. He will sacrifice his life for Jesus. And perhaps he is here even consciously trying to echo the language of Jesus, who back in John 10 had used this term to lay down his life five times when discussing how he as the good shepherd would lay down his life for the sheep. And maybe Peter is thinking the good sheep lays down his life for the shepherd too. And so caught up 
in this passionate outburst of commitment as Peter that all three other Gospels tell us he just kept piling it on. Matthew 26, 33 tells us, But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Luke 22, 33, But he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. Finally, Mark records the last outburst of Peter given in response to the words of Jesus that we're about to look at. But Peter kept saying insistently, Mark 14, 31, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they were all saying the same thing also. Right? So he even gets the rest of the disciples in on this. He was like, even if all these turkeys fall away, I will stick with you. And they're like, we're in two. Right? So it's becoming like this little drama. I want to be careful that we don't judge Peter too harshly or too quickly here. Because his words are indeed an expression in keeping with the highest form of love. It was Jesus himself who taught us in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. However, there are two problems with Peter's declaration. The first is that it is an ironic reversal of what must and will actually take place less than 24 hours from now. And second, Peter's ambitious words may accurately reflect how he feels in this moment, but they have outpaced the reality of his resolve. And so in verse 38, Jesus answers, Will you? Lay down your life for me. Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. How penetrating it must have been to hear Jesus take your words and repeat them back to you verbatim as a question. He is closing in here on the human reason that Peter cannot follow Jesus now. In the plan and providence of God, of course, Peter must live to help establish and lead the church. His testimony must be heard. His eyewitness account of Jesus proclaimed. He cannot finish his earthly mission yet. But on this night, however, Jesus isn't addressing the sovereign plan of God for Peter. He is addressing the human weakness of Peter. No, Peter will not lay down his life for Jesus. In just a few short hours, Peter will refuse to stand watch and pray with Jesus, repeatedly choosing instead to sleep. In just a few short hours, Peter will see his beloved master taken prisoner, and when he is told he cannot use violence in his defense, he will run away in fear. In just a few short hours, Peter will buckle beneath the intimidating questions of a servant girl and mix his salty sailor's vocabulary of curse words with not one, not two, but three explicit denials of Jesus. 
And at that very moment, as fear and anger surged through his heart and had quenched all the feelings of love and loyalty that burned in his chest here in the upper room, Peter's stream of cursing and denying were interrupted by the sound of a rooster crowing. And Peter was cut to the quick. Luke 22:62 says he went out and wept bitterly. Peter's problem here was not his declaration of courage. Oh, for thousands more who would be willing to die for the Savior. No, indeed, Peter's problem was that he thought he could lay his life down as a sacrifice according to his own strength and did not have the humility to realize we must all rely instead on the sacrifice of Jesus for us to have the strength to endure. We are reminded here that we are our greatest obstacle. We are our greatest obstacle. Peter was looking outside of him. If Jesus says you cannot follow, surely there's a rock in the road he doesn't think I can get over. But I'll find a way. He had forgotten his name meant rock. He was his own stone of stumbling. He was his own obstacle. He was what could not be cleared away. And this will always be true, that nothing will impede our ability to follow Jesus and to take a courageous stand for him like our own sin. And I want to be very clear here because there's two different ways we can respond to this realization. And one way is the fad of what you might call evangelic, evangelical faux humility. To say, well, then I will never declare anything with certainty. I will never speak anything with conviction. I will never declare anything as being authoritative. I'll just hedge and hem and haw. Oh, we are all just wretched sinners. Oh, who am I to ever judge? Oh, will any of us ever really be able to live this way? And we end up this this room full of shrinking, timid, cowardly voices, all feeling that there have we not proved our humility. That is not what Jesus calls us to. We do need to have the humility to recognize that our hearts are prone to weakness. We do need to realize our resolve is prone to wane. We do need to know that our flesh is prone to want things other than Christ. And that should motivate us to be serious about our sin. To not excuse the sin in our lives as, well, that's just part of my personality. To not dismiss sin in our children's lives as, oh, that's it's just a phase. God's people must be diligent to apply the sword of truth to our hearts, not just our habits. To root out and put to death any desires that would set themselves up against our love for Christ. Here's the thing for us, though. Unlike Peter in this passage, we have great help in this. Indeed, essential help. 
as those who live on this side of Pentecost, we have the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who lives within us. And we have the joy to live in reliance upon Him. And this is the secret of Christian courage. We have seen in our nation and even those around us, men and women who have stood up even in recent times with courage and said, this is the conviction we have about what God demands of us and we will not bow to another. We don't need to say to them, hey, don't do that, don't say that. Remember Peter said that. We need to pray, Lord, would you give them true strength and true courage, relying not on their own ability, but through the Holy Spirit, would you empower them to be courageous for you? This generation does not need a church of shrinking violets, right? Nor does it need an age of self-righteous Pharisees. It needs a generation of courageous truth-tellers who speak in love and in grace because they know they have been forgiven much and wish all to come to repentance. That is what we need. And so we must point them, and our second lesson here is point them to Jesus as the only Savior, the only Savior, Because here yet again, we see not only thrown into sharp relief, human failure, Peter's weakness, which is our own apart from him. We also see thrown into sharp relief, the exclusivity of the work of Jesus. He is the one who can lay down his life for us. Nobody else does. Nobody else can. Others may have blessed us and served us and taught us and loved us, but none can claim a drop of glory for saving us. Perhaps even in some extreme situations, someone died that you might hear the good news of Jesus. But only the death of Jesus is the good news worth dying for. And so we must take care that we do not ever think we or anyone else are contributing something to the sacrifice and work of Jesus. I'm going to lay my life down right alongside him and together we are going to get this thing done. What Jesus did, he did without help and he did to completion. Similarly, We may turn to medicine for the sickness of the body. We may turn to food for the strengthening of the body. But we must turn to Christ and Christ alone for the salvation of both body and soul. And it's worth looking at the affections of our heart this morning and asking ourselves, is Jesus our Savior and our Savior alone this morning? Or did we come in today relying on Jesus and a host of other lesser gods for our eternal destiny or our present joy. When you ask, what does my soul need? Is it Jesus 
plus anything? Or is it Jesus alone? We've seen a lot of truly, truly statements throughout the study of John. When Jesus says, pay attention, I want to give you something that is absolutely true. I don't want you to forget. And you wonder how far he got along in his sentence to Peter before Peter realized this truly, truly statement was not a general spiritual truth, but a personal spiritual rebuke. And I think we need to hear that as well. Truly, truly, we don't lay our lives down. He does. And it is fitting that we speak of the sufficiency and the exclusivity of Christ as we come to end our time in John this morning and we turn to our time of communion. This symbolic act that we take part in each week is a big deal. I trust we do not take it casually. The cup and the bread represent both the crushing and the conquering of Jesus. They represent that he went where we could not go and where we would not go and that having gone, he conquered. And he conquered entirely. And we remember that and we declare that. Also, in remembering what has been accomplished for us and in calling us to proclaim that truth until he comes, the cup and the bread for us represent craven sinners empowered to be courageous saints. It may become increasingly costly to take this cup and this bread to declare our identification with him. And there ought to be a counting of the cost both that was paid for us and the cost that we may be asked to pay for him when we come to the table. This is a symbol of death. His death for us. And it is a symbol that in him we have said to live as Christ, to die as gain. I'm no longer my own, but I have been bought with a price. Each week when we as the church of Jesus participate in this symbol, we renew our gratitude for the sacrifice of Jesus and we refresh our commitment to follow his leading. Both are true. And we shall make it by the grace of God all the way to heaven's shore and all the way there our Savior shall lead us and we shall be dependent upon him and we will sing of that in just a bit. But we have an opportunity now as we prepare to take the elements to pause for a time of prayer. Have you denied your Savior this week? You are not cast away from his love. Confess your sin and be encouraged in his forgiveness. Are you excited to boldly lay down your life for the cause of Jesus? Well, then take a moment and recall what strength it is that can sustain your courage and ask for the humility to lean on his strength and not your own. 
Do you come this morning and you're going through the motions, you feel indifferent, exhausted, or just stagnant? Pray that the joy of your salvation would be renewed within you and that you would again appreciate what Christ has done for you and the reason for which we can approach each and every day with joy. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, if you have not said, I will follow you by your grace, then we would encourage you, don't participate in communion because it is a declaration of allegiance to Jesus and it would be inappropriate to do so without having first made a confession of allegiance. But perhaps this morning you're realizing, I do wish to follow him who gave himself for me. In which case I would ask you, Would you cry out to God, even in your heart, and say, Father, forgive me the sinner on the merits of Christ, your Son. And then join with us in partaking of communion. It is for those who are old, and it is for those who are young. It is for those who are rich and for those who are poor. It is for all who will come by faith to Christ. And so would you pray together And then we will take together. Our Father, in heaven we desire to hallow your name today, to recognize you as the Holy One who dwells in unapproachable light. And yet we come as your children, not with the fear of trembling because you have revealed yourself to us in Christ and have drawn us near through his sacrifice. And so we in him may come as your children boldly before you. And we are thankful that you have gone where we could not go, that you have sent your son to lay his life down for us, and that you have given us your spirit that we may follow his example And I pray this morning that you would indeed, by your grace in us, renew our hearts in thankfulness for Christ, renew them in a desire to obey and strengthen them for the unknown road ahead. And this we pray for your glory and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's take together. All the way my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Amen. Let us stand and close in song.